Welcome to The Developmental, a podcast about the messy, beautiful ways grown-ups grow up. Here, we explore turning the science into the day-to-day practice of adult development in teams, homes, organizations, and life. Hello, friends, and welcome to a new episode of The Developmental. The conversation I'm about to invite you into is one that made my brain buzz and left me reflecting for days after we recorded it. It is exploring a very new space which has hardly been touched by systematic research, the intersection of neuroscience and vertical development. One of the limitations of adult development theories is that they have been traditionally grounded in psychology and have not had to date support from the hard science space, such as cognitive science or neuroscience. But that is slowly changing. And I'm joined today by a cognitive scientist who lives with a footum in both of these worlds, cognitive research and adult development, to explore what this intersection between these two fields might look like. Johan Trecker has a diverse background ranging from academia to military and security work. In the early years, he worked on the front line as a protection officer, security operator and consultant, as well as in the rehabilitation of young offenders. Later, he swung in an academic direction, lecturing and researching cognitive science and organizational psychology, while still keeping a foot in the high-stakes world training of various operators in stress management, threat and tactical security behavior, as well as high-risk conflict management. He has been leading an academic leadership program for senior non-com officers and Air Force pilots. Previously, Johan was an associate professor at UC South Denmark, and is currently a consultant at Amara Collaboration and a scientific advisor at Shifting Horizons. Johan has been exploring the space between science, spirituality and adult development for two decades and will continue to do so. His primary interest is in the interplay between human consciousness, biological systems and physics. He lives in Denmark and enjoys his free time reading extensively, sea kayaking, running, self-defense and, when there is time, exploring the wild. I've learned a lot from this conversation and I was left with many more questions than I started with. So hopefully, depending on your feedback and your own curiosities, there might be a follow-up to this one. I'm looking forward to your thoughts once you listen to it. Hello, Johan, and welcome on The Developmental. Hello. <laughs> this this has been a bit of uh, a bit of um, a dialogue in the making for a little while now, um, and I'm super super excited that we actually get to explore what I believe is um, a virtually unexplored intersection between adult development and and neuroscience. And I've already you've stirred the pot quite a bit in our previous conversations, and there's so much I want to ask you. And so much I want to learn. So very excited to have you here. Thank you. Johan, I'd love to start maybe by inviting you to, because you, you have a very interesting journey. You've come from cognitive science and from a research background, and you've immersed yourself in adult development, and now you're straddling these two worlds. 
So I'd love to invite you to share a bit of what that story is. How did your background as a very rational, data-driven scientist bring you to this point where you've come to be curious about this less tangible, let's say, evolution of consciousness and how adults develop and transform? And what has sparked that inquiry for you? Mm, What's the story? So I have a quite a mixed background. The funny thing is that I never really did well in school and I didn't like school at all, which also made me kind of a, a misfit. And at the time, I didn't see that as a strength, but obviously it became quite a strength because I always looked at things from outside of the conventional. And when I went to high school, I didn't like it either. I just wanted to get out and I actually wanted to join the military because I thought that there would be a place for me there because I didn't fit well into the mainstream. So, and I did actually join and I spent some time there and I also spent quite some years in security. But at what, the what, same can time... Can I ask you, what made you think that would be a better fit for a misfit? Like, How did that work? I don't know. I had this romantic notion that all the, the misfits would join together uh, outside of mainstream society in the military. Unfortunately, I discovered that military is just a different mainstream. I joined some training in America with some American special forces. And there I found some of what I was looking for, because in a way, what I noticed was a lot of people in the special forces community were, they were quite outside of the, the, the conventional. So there was something there. I found a kind of a tribe of people who didn't fit in and who were thinking a little bit differently. And so that was kind of interesting. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for you to think a bit differently or to not fit into the mainstream? What does that look like? And and how did it lead you to ending up studying how the brain works and how emotions work and all of that hardware that we carry around all day? That's a very good question. Actually, I, for some odd reason, I got this idea. I was working with security consulting and also high-risk protection stuff. And I kind of started to get curious. I, I've always been curious. And I, even though I didn't like school, I was always reading a lot of books about psychology. And I could use that in the work doing security consulting. I wanted to learn more. And of course, then I would have to go to university. And I did that. And at the same time, I was always almost working, sometimes even more than full-time in the security field. So that was actually a huge help because I could actually somehow test some of the ideas. And I always had this sense that at that time, I didn't know anything about vertical development, but I had the sense that there is something about the way that we construct reality that that must progress, not in a horizontal way, which means that we just build more and more knowledge about the world and everything is about information. I had this idea that, no, it, it must be something else. It's not just about acquiring information. It not just about be... a volume volume of no there must Mm -hmm. be something else and that else was of course the way we construct reality and i started to explore that at the university i was studying system science and informatics and also cognitive science and 
still I couldn't really get what I needed because most of the stuff was more about information. Everything was about information, a system, how does information work in a system? And and when I, I finally graduated, I, I had this idea, well, now I know a lot of stuff about the brain. So, and I started also to work as a consultant and I was thinking I should just write a book about that stuff. And then I started and I realized I know absolutely nothing about the brain because even though I've been studying that stuff for several years I, I realized that there's so much stuff I need to know because I need to connect so many dots and at some point I was invited to work full-time at a university get into the tenure line and I did that but I didn't have enough time to do my own research because I needed to know, I wanted to know everything. So I, I forced myself to spend all my mm-hmm. weekends and all my spare time. And at some point they got, I think they got really frustrated with me at the, at the university because I was interested in all that stuff and they didn't really, they couldn't see the connection because then finally I stumbled uh, upon vertical development and this notion of, of people developing in stages and I wanted to connect the cognitive stuff with with that and 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 they couldn't really see the purpose in that and at that time I also had my first child and if I wanted to progress with that I needed to go abroad probably to America or and that wasn't an option at the time. What was it for you? What do you think you were looking for? So you had learned a lot about how the brain works as, as yeah. a mechanism, let's say. What yeah. what did you feel? What was the question that was driving you? What was the question? Yeah. Or maybe there were several questions that were driving this search. Hmm. So I was very driven to somehow realize how people develop and how we gain a capacity to create different results because being this kind of misfit i kind of thought that conventional society there was something wrong something didn't work and that was kind of my drive i had this very strong drive to change things and to do something differently and i i kind of just saw everywhere that everything was the conventional way of understanding things in medicine in sociology in psychology and cognitive there was just something that didn't work out but at the same time i also knew that a lot of the stuff i've been working with and that a lot of the things that you actually can read about in the science literature also see things very differently you just need to find the right space and the right the right perspective and for instance complex non-linear dynamics and stuff like that is is a very different way of looking at organisms and also cognition because Mm -hmm. suddenly you don't get a linear model you get a a circular uh, model of complexity and and that's why I, i started to really be more interested in that stuff and what what do you feel is the thing that you've learned that has maybe in a way challenged your own thinking like that has really yes sparked a different perspective for you um, because we were talking before we were starting we're going to start this recording about some stories that we still Mm. uh, believe collectively about how our mind works about how rational and emotional aspects of our 
um, brain mm. and our system work. And and you were talking yeah. about how important it is to challenge some of these stories and how we could actually yeah. benefit and grow from challenging them. I'd love you to, mm. to say a bit more about what was it that you learned? What What is the story that you found that actually mm. needs to be challenged? And how do we yeah. challenge it? So first of all, the first thing I noticed was that every time, every time I thought I got it all figured out, <laughs> I noticed that a month or two months later, that picture shattered all over the place. And then I started needed to start all over. And now I eventually I reached a point where I could see that I could never really be sure about anything. And that was a great realization because I suppose that's also in a way, the way that we develop, if we have two fixed ideas about now I know, well, then we don't develop. And I could see that that was also the process with science. Most of us think that scientists are these people who always look for the new stuff. But no, most of the time, a scientist has an, a hypothesis, and then the scientists would go and try to prove it. Uh, and sometimes they have to disprove it, but most of the time they, they, they believe in the hypothesis. And that's how we work. That's how the brain works. The brain is not this kind of, oh, I need to uh, look for the new stuff. No, the brain always have an idea. It has a belief and it wants to prove that belief because if it can prove the belief, the world is predictable. And the world, when the world is predictable, we can minimize uncertainty. And in a way, all biological life tries to minimize uncertainty. And uncertainty is unpredictability. So our whole, in a way, nervous system, our whole organism is designed or evolved to, to in a way, to, to minimize unpredictability. Mm-hmm. However, however, if we kind of notice that well that's that that's fine if you drive a car it's pretty good and and it's pretty good that you get food and water and all that stuff but if you want to develop a society an organization or even a human being well you need to break out of that predictive nature sometimes because development happens beyond predictability beyond uh, the certain stuff and I could see that that makes sense for science and it makes sense for human life in general. And that's that's what I found so immensely interesting that, in fact, I shouldn't go about looking at the, the hard science stuff as if, well, I already know, I just need to fill out the, the gaps in a way, because that's how the brain works. It just wants yep. to fill out the gaps all the time because it wants to know. Because not knowing is not a good space to be in for a biological organism that needs to get what it needs. It needs heat, it needs water, it needs food, and it needs it now and it needs it in the future. So unpredictability is not a good thing. So in a sense, what you're saying, and I think that connects in such interesting ways with what we know, we both know from developmental science, where we know that a new perspective is unlocked or that that internal growth occurs when human beings face what uh, Jack Mesero used to call disorienting dilemmas, where you just can't make sense of the world with your current worldview. Yeah, exactly. And what you're saying is that we are almost designed to avoid doing that. We are designed to not face or not lean into the disorienting dilemmas because uh, our brain is always looking for that safety that predictability 
So how do you explain, I've always been fascinated ever since I started my own research, because, and maybe to give a bit of context to that question, 12, 13 years ago, when I started to inquire more into the value of self-awareness for leadership development, neuroscience was was my first uh, gateway into this. I was, I read everything I could get my hands on to, to kind of try to unpack how can an understanding of this architecture that we carry around inform our decisions or our growth in some way. So now it feels almost like I'm coming back full circle to kind of reflect or stay curious about how does this we know that there is something changing with people when they grow vertically, right? So something changes in the way they see the world, something changes in the way they behave. I know when we were talking about this of only two studies that have teased out what possibly could happen with neural networks and the default mode network with people as they grow vertically. But what's your hypothesis? Because I imagine this is has to be built in our system in some way for us to even be capable of this kind of transformative growth. And yet what you're saying is our default is to not experience that in a sense. It's like our default is to look for certainty, but nature also equipped us with this capacity to grow and transform when we are faced with uncertainty, when we are forced to work our way through those disorienting dilemmas. So what do you think Mm. almost, what do you think was nature's plan B in allowing yeah. us to even grow vertically in the first place? That's a mm. very long-winded question. I hope it makes sense. Yeah, and tell me if it does. Uh, it does. It does. It does. So, so, so the dilemma is always, in a way, what biologists would call explore and exploit. So should I explore something new or should I just exploit what I have, which means should I stay or should I go? And, and that accounts for pretty much everything. Even a bacteria would, would somehow, now it's, it's here and there's sugar and it's really good. I can stay here. But what happens when there's no sugar? I need to move. And it's kind of the same for, for a, a human being. You know, at some point I've been exploiting the same thing. For instance, I have had the same job for 25 years, but suddenly, you know, people don't use physical mail anymore. So now it's it's all digitalized, digitized. So what now? I have to do something new. So the environment always forces a Changes. change in a way. So and in a way, so the funny thing is that at one end we have this biological organism we call ourselves. On the other hand, we have this strange thing, what some scientists would call a can of worms. We call it consciousness. And and we don't really know where it comes from, what it is. But, you know, I might have a few ideas and, and not everybody would like that. But in a way, the way I see it is that consciousness is, is, it is a tool, but it's probably a tool that comes from somewhere else outside of the biological organism. And somehow we can we can master that tool. So first of all, the environment would push us sometimes to change. Something will happen. People around us change, uh, financial crisis, whatever. Something happens that forces people to change. But that's that's kind of an unconscious uh, change. So at some point in our lives, we might start to realize, oh, holy moly, I actually changed all these times all throughout my life. And that just kind of happened to me. And then I start to 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 notice this whole storyline. And, and in a way, I can become conscious of that. And in a way, at some point, I might start to realize, well, perhaps I could 
oh, perhaps I could do that in a conscious yeah. way. Perhaps, perhaps there's I more could... available to me and I can actually go look for it instead of have it happen to me. Exactly. And 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 that's, that's just a fascinating thing that we humans can do. I don't know if other animals can do the same. I, perhaps some can do, but, but I don't know. But, but at least humans can. So there's something really interesting about the way the architecture of the brain and not just uh, the architecture, but also the structure and the organization and the structure and the organization changes. In fact, people would say, oh, if you do meditation, you can change your brain. Well, the, the brain changes all the time. When I wake up in the morning, I, I the brain has changed so much during the day that when I go to sleep, the 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 some mechanism in the brain has to figure out all the changes that happen during the day how which should we keep and which should we cut away during the night so in fact the brain changes all the time but all of that yeah neuroplasticity is always at work in a sense all the time when i drink water some synapse change the strength in one another synapse change and so it happens all the time but it's unconsciously it, it i'm not aware of it i'm and i'm not paying attention to it Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is that we we could become aware of this. Some cognitive scientists, they would say that 95% of ourselves, we cannot be conscious about only 5%. I would say it's, it's it doesn't look that way. 100% of what's going on inside my brain is totally unconscious to me. I could not know anything about what's going on because how could I? I can't scan my brain, but I can be aware of my behavior and my thoughts and my feelings. And by being aware of that, I can derive something about my mechanisms. You know? So you can be aware of your experience, of your conscious experience, rather yeah. than the underlying mechanisms. Yeah. Honestly, I'm listening to you, Johan, and I've got like 20 questions <laughs> floating in my brain. I mean, one thing that I'll say is, uh, and I, I, we won't open that can of worms, but I know it's a fascinating one to even consider mm. the, the two camps in consciousness research in a sense, mm. or I think maybe one camp is much larger than the other that mm. supports the idea that consciousness is merely a byproduct of the brain. Although yeah. I've just seen this fascinating experiment recently where two theories of where consciousness might be in the brain and what mm. the neural networks involved were compared and put head to head and actually both turned out to be correct in a sense so we're Mm. still in a deadlock we don't know so if it's a byproduct Mm. of the brain it's still what i got from that is we have no idea how it happens and you're saying we could also consider consciousness is this mysterious tool that is not actually a byproduct of the brain but it's something that Mm. is somehow from outside that we can learn how to hone in a way but either way what i'm also hearing and please contradict me if i got this wrong but what i'm hearing you say is growth is in essence an ongoing process of becoming ever more conscious of your own experience and that includes Mm. your behaviors your thoughts your emotions Mm. and and the value of that for you is what why would people even go through the pain of becoming more conscious Mm. Mm. So first of all, I, the way I see it is that it's not that we become more conscious because in a way, I think the most conscious uh, creature in the human realm is a newborn baby because they're 100% conscious of Fully everything. present. 100% just like, boom, unless they're sleeping. 
so it's not about becoming more conscious, but it's becoming more conscious about what we are conscious about in a way. Like so, a meta-awareness. And, and in a way, you could say, well, that's also what consciousness is about. Even some people would even say that even a, a single cell, a single celled organism would have to be somehow a little bit sentient to have this feedback loop of, oh, I shouldn't go there. That, that wasn't good. I should go rather I should go that way. Um, but I would like to start in another place, in another space to to map out why this would be a good idea. So what happens when a baby is born? So the baby just comes into the world and, and it's not like it's a blank slate, but it's it's pretty blank because human babies they, they can't do much. They can they they scream and they they cry and and but they they it's not like a, a newborn gazelle that can move around within just a few minutes. They can't do that. So in a way, they 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 need to develop so much, and and their whole nervous system is very immature. The brain is very immature, and it needs to develop, which it does. And even some scientists would say that perhaps uh, a baby brain can grow up to a million new synapses every damn second that's a lot you know <laughs> so so it's it's obvious that what happens well the baby is building a model in a way of the world and that doesn't mean that that it's it's not like an a computer model it's it's more a model of what might i expect from the world and what could i do with the world so the, the baby learns motor skills and and they are stored as as models and it learns sensory skills oh this 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 might be a ball and this ball is really funny and if somebody throws it to me it's 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 really interesting and then the baby starts to build this model and and as it grows the bottle becomes more complex it becomes bigger and bigger and it, in the end it can predict all sorts of things it can predict if i say this to my mom she's going to do that and that's great and if i don't say this she's going to do something else or if i do this to my brother or my sister or that's this and that and the model just grows and grows and grows but in a way it is still a model which means that it's just a draft of reality. It's not the reality. And, and there's not much reflection important. on the model itself, right? Because not at all. As we not are young, we don't really yeah. necessarily, or most of the time we don't realize that no. we are we are, as Keegan would say, we are yeah. subject to our models of reality. Yeah. We don't we don't make them object that we can actually look no. and go, oh, is this model actually what I need or should I tweak exactly. it a little bit? And here's where my perspective comes in because then would you could ask so what is that model for and then we have to start from a very different space which is early evolution so one could ask so why why do we even have brains why did brains evolve and i think the question so the answer is that brains or central nervous systems evolved to create more complex behavior and that's kind of it brains evolved for behavior and they evolved for behavior to make sure that the metabolism of the body is well. So, so the whole purpose of having a brain is uh, to make sure that the body is doing well and fine. Uh, and, and then we grow this predictive model of how to predict, first of all, the brain needs to predict needs of the body before they arise. And it needs to predict 
how to get it. How, okay, I'm low on blood sugar. In fact, we're not low on blood sugar. When people say, oh, my blood sugar is low, it's just the brain that predicts that right now I should make my host, whatever that is, feel that the blood sugar is low, but it's not low at all. I just make my my host feel that way because then I know my host is going to go to the fridge and eat something before the blood sugar becomes drops. low, before it drops. A baby can't do that, but a, a baby will learn that from engaging with the environment and learning from parents and learning from other people. So in a way, we build this whole predictive model. But again, and then we come to believe that everything in the model is reality. For instance, a cat, the, the baby points, and then the mom or the dad says, oh, that's a cat. Okay, a cat. Now I know what a cat is. And then we categorize cat. Okay, that's a cat. But no, we don't really know. It, it's just a model. We just think we know. And then when we grow up, we learn about economy. We learn about KPI, strategy, this and that. But still, it's just models. It's not reality. It's just a constructed reality. And and that, that whole system develops inside the brain and inside the body and all of it is just to serve the body. So I learn about strategy because if I become good at strategy, I can preserve my body well. And that, that's, that's the brain's job. It's to make sure that the body is fine. And it's also, of course, to make sure that if you get a child, well, then you protect the child, and, and which is a very good thing, by the way, because that's how the species survives. But 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 still, it's it's kind of a rigged game from the get go, and mm. and 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 unless we somehow discover that it's a rigged game from the beginning, then we'll just be servants to whatever meta metabolic needs the body has at a certain moment in time. Yeah, and then we build this whole story of culture, art, all of those things on top of that. And then we think we transcended nature. No, no, we didn't, you know, not even close. In fact, nature just made a more sophisticated way of, of preserving the needs of the body. Yeah? What, what I find interesting and, and a bit confronting and challenging at the same time in what you're saying is that the paradox of this mechanism you're describing is that we got to a point where we are effectively, actively harming both nature and ourselves in the process of just blindly following the models that we have collectively learned to hold as truth, which is perhaps exactly. where the value of a developmental perspective comes in because the developmental perspective essentially invites people to disturb their current models, not to exactly. throw them away automatically, not to label them as wrong, but to genuinely inquire into the validity of the model or even entertain the idea that what I hold mm. as absolute truth is a mental model. It's a construct. Yeah. So yeah. if I start to become curious, I'm starting to ask a lot of interesting questions. So mm. how do you explain that paradox <laughs> of of what, what seems to be like a self-preservation impulse in a sense mm. leads to self-destruction? So then mm. how do we transcend that impulse? What's yeah, yeah so, what do you see the role of development in this story? How does that work from your perspective? So in a way you could say that so the, the especially a human brain, but but also other animals, the, the brains are extremely adaptable. Uh, but again, they don't adapt to the present moment. Well, at least they try to do that, but they have to use the past to predict 
what's what's useful in the present moment. So we have this developmental history where we constructed our our model in a way, which means that sometimes we try to adapt to something that might not be useful in the future. For instance, maybe I grew up in 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 a violent. Maybe my parents were violent, and then I get a violent pa- uh, partner in the future. You know, and then you could say, well, that that's pretty harmful, isn't it? But it's predictable. It's what I know, so it's predictable. I can predict. Oh, if I do this, my yeah. husband. Even when the pattern be... is harmful, there's safety yeah. in the harmful pattern. It's, it's predictable, uh, and and the brain, in a way, is very important to 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 know that the brain doesn't know anything. It's 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 in a way the brain is is a. It's it's a in a way you could say the brain is like an organization. Everybody doesn't know everything. So every there are some people who know a little bit over here. Some people know a little bit over here, and and they need to interact and and, and talk. And there's always also trillions of cells down here, and we also they also know their separate reality. So in a way, the whole organism is this collective intelligence. When we talk about collective intelligence, it's very important to know that we are collective intelligence because we are not. We're trillions of cells, and they are all, in a way, intelligent. And when they talk together, they just create more of it, in a way. So even the brain tries to predict what what might this be. Okay, so it might pr- try to predict. Oh, there's a big dog, and and uh, when I was a kid, a big dog bite uh, bit me. So, uh oh, that's not good. So uh, we need to avoid uh, a dog. You know. So it predicts. Oh, I see fur. I see an ear coming around the corner. Oh, oh, that's bad. And then my whole nervous system wakes up. However, it's also the same for every individual cell. It doesn't know, you know, the brain cells don't know what's outside. They don't know what's in the body. They they also need to predict. They also need to have their own model models, which means that if I grow up in a violent relationship, my brain and all the cells, to some extent, in, in my body, they come to to believe that well, that's the reality, that's the real reality, that's that's the right place to be. It hurts sometimes, but it's predictable. So the only way that we can change that is if we come to realize that well, it's what I would like. I would like to be in a violent relationship. At least my brain and my body would like to be here. Because that's all they know. But consciously, I can come to realize perhaps there's a reality on the other side of the fence that's better. Unfortunately, if I uh, leave the violent relationship, I need to step out into uncertainty. And that's not pleasant because that's very unpleasant. And there I will feel a lot of negative affect. And we can we call that anxiety. But in a way, we could say it's everything. It's, it's guilt. It's shame. It's uh, whatever. It's negative feelings. Oh, I'm outside of the fence of what I like. And that's not nice. And that's how everything is in a way. Everything is in life is, am I inside the fence where everything is nice and cozy? Or am I outside of the fence where it's not, it's unpredictable? But if I want to change an adaptive model that is not working, then I need to step outside of that fence. And that's not going to be, it's going to be, it's not going to feel well. And that's why I also got very interested in your work. I'd love to maybe just zoom in a bit on what you said, because I think there's a really important idea there that 
in a sense, we are built to get used to even the pain of our current models. And, and there's some comfort in the familiar pain, whatever that yeah. familiar pain might look like yeah. for each of us. You gave mm. the example of an unhealthy, dysfunctional relationship, mm. but it could play out in the workplace. Mm. There will be somebody was talking yeah. to me today about their people pleasing parents mm. that they yeah, they are so conscious same. of that they, they that pattern does not bring them yeah. joy but they keep finding themselves yeah. caught up in that pattern mm. yeah. and on the other side to break the pattern there's also mm. discomfort but this time it's a different type of discomfort it's it's the pain and anxiety and fear of not having a model and not being able yeah. to predict what's going to happen next mm. exactly. we were you were touching on where our kind of interests intersect. And we actually met in a workshop where we were talking about emotions and the role that they play mm -hmm. in, in adult development. And for me, talking to you and hearing your perspective from an evolution and neuroscientific perspective on why that discomfort is actually good mm -hmm. and welcome, because it's actually the threshold you have to cross for your brain to break yeah. its mm -hmm. current predictive model. That made mm -hmm. so much sense to me. And it explained yeah. why... When I ran the research and I found that the third of the people who had actually developed through that study were also the ones who somehow believed those unpleasant emotions held some value and mm. they were curious about them, which I now connect with the exploratory impulse you were describing. So they mm. almost turned their exploration impulse towards those over mm. the fence emotions, as you just called yeah. them. And that allowed yeah. them to open up their mind to a different way of seeing the whatever the mm. context or the challenge was that they were in. And mm. I, I'm, I'm wondering on a practical level, because I know you also have a perspective around how action can drive mm. internal change. And that's yeah. a bit different from a lot of mainstream thought that says, no, first we have to introspect and change the mindset yeah. and then we act. Yeah. So I'm always yeah. interested in the science is fascinating, but how can we turn it into practice? So mm. how can we create or instill in people the capacity, mm. the awareness, and then the capacity mm. to really utilize those over the fence emotions to really know mm. or recognize the moment when the current model is no longer working and also mm. expect that it's not going to feel pleasant to get out of the current mm. model. Mm. What yeah. role does action acting before in a mm. way introspecting yeah. or doing both yeah. at the same time what's the role of that what's the role of action mm. in personal transformation from your perspective mm. in a way it's kind of everything at least from a brain perspective because as i said before brains did not evolve to think i don't even know if i said that in that way but brains didn't evolve to think brains evolved to behave to control a body in order to move around the world so everything is about in a way action and also, when we think about perception, perception is also about action, because even just to look at something, we actually need to move our heads to get different angles from what we are looking at. And the whole the way that the optic nerve and, and the way that the visual cortex is constructed, it needs constant movement. And you would even see the eyes are moving around all the time. We call that in order to, to gather. So everything is in a way about action and then we would say in a classical cognitive science notions we would say that perception is here action is here and cognition is there you know you have but, to now describe which which parts of your head did you just point to, to the back like, of the oh, head yeah. the, the occipital lobe the visual cortex and then you have the 
frontal and the parietal, that's the action parts, the motor cortex, and then the frontal lobes, that's where all the important stuff is happening. And, and then we have the really bad stuff down below in the reptilian brain, when, and the frontal cortex tries to control that. So that's the classical old modular view of the brain. But what? But that is an old view of the brain, because it doesn't really seem to work that way, because everything is in a way about getting around in the world. So everything is about getting the body around in the world. So there's and an, an interconnectedness. Around. That separation is actually yeah, a whole separation. It's, it's, it's a whole system, and it has, in a way, the same purpose. And the funny thing is, you could even say that what we would call the reptilian brain, the, the brainstem and all that stuff, and the hind brain. The funny thing is that you could actually say that the prefrontal cortex, the purpose of the prefrontal cortex is to serve the lower parts of the brain because the brainstem is connected to the body. And that's if the body doesn't do well, we're screwed. So the body has to do well. That That's the first uh, task. And the brain needs to attend to that all the time. And in order to make sure that the body is well, it needs to move. Uh, and there it has its models. It has its action models of I can move my arm here, I can grab something, or even I can even extend that further into the world. I can use my mouth, which is also action. <laughs> I move my mouth, I move my lungs, my lungs generate the air, muscles in my throat, the voice box muscles, and all of that is connected. It's even connected to the heart because the heart needs to know that now I'm talking. And then it needs to pump more blood because the lungs are moving more. And so this whole entire system is connected. It's, it's all about action. And to change those models of if I do this, this will happen. For instance, if I do this, uh, I can stay in a violent relationship. Or if I do this, my employees will behave in this way. And I like that. I like that. I want to control. Again, it's about predictability. So we need control. In fact, a lot of neuroscientists would say that the brain is a control system. It needs to control everything all the time as much That'll as possible. That'll be uh, what a lot of the leaders that I work with will <laughs> talk about, yeah. not necessarily referring to their brain, but referring to themselves no. as needing to control. Yeah. And that's the brain. because it, And that's why we need to recognize at some point in our development, we are more than our brain. We're in fact, an, an entire system of consciousness, of the brain, of the body, and the world we live in. So we, in a way, we're much more than that. And we need to come to this realization that the brain has its job, and that is to take care of the body. But I don't need to always listen to that. Sometimes I could actually let go of control uh, and step out and see what happens. It's uh, Maybe I'll be a little bit scared. I'll feel uncomfortable. But the uncomfortable signal is potential for new learning and yeah, that's growth another pains, thing. as i have come to call them growth pains yeah, exactly. in the yeah. brain just like kids have growth pains yeah. in their limbs when they're growing up yeah, exactly and that's another funny thing about the brain because for instance one of the learning molecules does of course a million other things but one of the primary learning molecules in the brain is uh, norepinephrine noradrenaline but noradrenaline is also a stress signaling hormone, stress uh, neurotransmitter. And that's a kind of funny. So if you want to learn something new, there's also a stress signal. Some in stress way. involved. When you seek out novelty, you also need to be aware that sometimes it was in fact a tiger. Sometimes, sometimes I actually need to go in a, a different way. So it makes yeah. sense for evolution or nature to connect stress and learning in a way that's fascinating 
So yeah. it, it would almost, if you integrate that, that just, just this nugget that you've articulated now, this means that there's no way you can learn something new without expecting some level of stress or discomfort in the process, whatever it is that you are learning. Because that's no, not, not really. No. no, but again, eventually we can come to experience. For instance, we put ourselves in all sorts of stressful situations. For instance, going to a theme park, driving the roller coaster, or trying to fly an airplane, jumping with a parachute. We do all sorts of stressful things, and which we sometimes even like. So it's, it's stress doesn't have to be negative. But again. It's a model. It's just a model. It's not reality. Yes. I'm just going to throw a, a thought in there that somebody was telling me recently that somebody's stress is somebody else's excitement. So it, it yeah. feels like that's exactly what you're saying, that it is exactly. also a matter of how we interpret yeah. what we feel exactly. as stress. For instance, here in Scandinavia, people love to swim in the wintertime when we call that hormetic stress. Well, that's not toxic stress. That's positive stress. It's not super comfortable to immerse yourself in zero degrees uh, that's celsius i'm sorry for the fahrenheit's out there but zero degrees celsius well that's very cold water but but it's actually good for the body for mm -hmm. the mind in a way there's all sorts of negative things that we can come to appreciate and learn from and this somehow leads me to think of robert kagan's immunity to change process yeah. and his what i found such a powerful transformative lens that he puts on the idea of experimenting with challenging some of your big assumptions which sounds like it's very much act to yeah. disturb your model of the world so if that means mm. lean into the difficult conversation that you've been avoiding having or yeah. step up and speak up when your default model says sit down and shut up or whatever it is yeah. that is a little bit risky, but I'd love you to speak a little bit about this idea of how do we organize these experiments, these actions that can actually lead us to expand our model of the world mm. and knowing that they're going to make us uncomfortable, but we're going to do them anyway. How mm. do we find that sweet spot between challenging ourselves and not mm. paralyzing ourselves? Because what I've also yeah. seen is when people are trying to take a risk that is too high, it's just mm. way too threatening to experiment yeah. with whatever that action yeah. might be. We won't do it. We mm. end up self-sabotaging. We end up pulling yeah. back and mm. pulling back into the old model. So yeah. what would be a practical way almost to, to know how much discomfort is healthy mm. and good? Mm. And when does it become maybe toxic or too much? Mm. Definitely. And there's a very important distinction there because it is really important to be aware that that there's a reason why the brain and the body works the way it works. We have a whole stress system. Some people would call it also a threat system. And, and in a way, we couldn't even say that it's one system. It's many systems. Most people would say that we have this lower part of the brain, and that's where all the bad stuff happens, and the, the amygdala, everybody talks about that, that controls fear, and that's very bad, blah, blah, blah. Well, not really true. It, it plays a part, but, but the way I would put it is that the whole brain, in a way, is scared of the world that it can't predict, and the whole brain is there to make sure that we just we don't just barge into something because that could be very dangerous because the more unpredictable something becomes the more the potential for a negative surprise goes up 
Uh, and, and that can be actually uh, harmful because we can become, that's what we would call sometimes, we call it a trauma. It's traumatizing. And in a way, a trauma from this perspective, is it is something the brain remembers well, you together with the body, by the way, but it, it's something that it remembers that it, this is never going to happen to me again. This yeah. I will never, I will never do this. An again, unpredictable you know, situation leading to enormous pain, yeah. something that you never yeah. want to experience again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 this system is also very much linked to what we would sometimes call the freeze mechanism, or when it gets really bad, we call it immobilized state and that means that we come into a state and we can't move we don't know what to do we're just really stuck so if we push ourselves too much the brain has this fail-safe mechanism of just shutting down everything like the handbrake pulling the yes it's it's a serious handbrake in a way okay you can't control anything anymore so i'll take over from here now and i'll just do and then the whole in a way we just shut down and people has felt that when somebody's yelling at them or when somebody's getting really angry of if two cars crash in front of us, we get this. And that's where all the trauma often happens. That's when we go into, we end up in this situation of immobilization. So it's very important to be very aware that too much is when we push it too much. And, and in fact, from my own perspective, it's, it's, it's the small things. Sometimes I could just do something as simple as Let's try to eat 20 minutes earlier or later than I used to. Simple stuff. Tomorrow, I'm going to ask my employees one question. I don't like to ask them questions because they're going to go crazy. They start, but tomorrow, I'll just ask them. They'll start sharing their thoughts. (laughs) I don't want to hear that. No, no, but I'm not going to ask 20 questions, just one, just one question. And I, for instance, I, I, my, my old fear of, of the conventional also, you know, if I, I was someplace and, and let's, for instance, I had an experience a while back. I was in a foreign country and, and I was walking. I wanted to go to a beach, but I needed to, to cross a, some, some big rocks, a small mountain, in fact. And then I almost came down there and I wanted to go to a beach where there was no people because I knew this area is very secluded. But there was, I could hear voices and I was thinking, oh, no, there's people. How bad can it be? You know, and and I feel this resistance. Oh, no, I don't want to go there. People. But then I reminded myself, no, 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 no. Come on, you idiots. Just move. Just transgress the model. And then I, in fact, I did so. And there, there were some people, but they were at a boat. And 10 minutes later, they were gone. And they didn't talk to you. (laughs) No, they didn't. And the two in of fact, us would get they... along perfectly at a networking event, Johan. Certainly. We would be the yeah. two sitting on the side and going, oh, thank God yeah. I don't have to speak to anybody. Else. Exactly. And the worst part was I liked boats. And then I saw, oh, that's a, that's a cool boat. And in fact, I actually just wanted to talk with them, but they were too far out. <laughs> Anyways, and that's the purpose of a lot of the affect mm-hmm. the brain generates in the body together with the body. The purpose is to control our behavior around the world. Yeah. Don't go there, go there, don't go. But again, it's just the model. So I we need to go there. We need to go there, but then almost and also know what what is that small step we can actually take. Yeah. And what I'm hearing you say is that there is a lot of value in the small steps that's, that feel slightly uncomfortable, 
not yeah. paralyzingly risky. Mm. And I think this yeah. also challenges a big assumption that I'm seeing floating around in a lot of high performance environments in organizations mm. where you and yeah. I spend a lot of time mm. in those environments. There's almost this all or nothing kind of mindset. Yeah. If it's not mm. big, it's not yeah. worth doing. And in a mm. in a sense, what what we're kind of talking about here is that interestingly, our brain actually changes most reliably when we put ourselves through incremental discomfort. So the big things might actually be much less helpful than the many small things we can do to incrementally Mm. uh, step outside of our comfort zone. So perhaps Mm. for the people listening, and I know there are a lot of coaches, a lot of facilitators, a lot of leaders tuning into these conversations Mm. Perhaps there's an invitation for reflection at this point to kind of go, what what are some of the incremental steps that maybe you haven't mm. taken because they were too small to count and you've been yeah, waiting for exactly. the big thing? Yeah. And maybe it's time to actually take that small, uncomfortable step to disturb your current model in some way. Mm. And that step will put, potentially lead to another one and another one. And if there's a practical mm. thing that people can take from this conversation, this mm. might be one one mm. thing to to play yeah. with to challenge that all or nothing mindset mm, definitely and also i would also say that the the brain is pretty pretty smart in that way that it really wants to make sure that we are okay so sometimes we might think that now we're going to do something really crazy but lo and behold the brain will have its say it will have its say 100%. And if you if you think otherwise, it's an illusion. It just is. Because this is, just, this is not just a matter of doing something differently. It's a matter of your construction of reality. And if you go beyond your construction of reality, that's ego death. And that's not happening. It would take an entire life of hardcore development to reach a point where we can step outside of the ego. And when I say ego, I mean our current construction of reality. That's a lifetime of development. And and, and it also means the death of me. So when people say those things, from my experience and also what I've seen as as a consultant is that people would do crazy things, but it's still in a way within their models they just don't see it that way they think that all oh, this is really crazy stuff but the brain will have its say so the only way to tra- transgress this the only way to actually mitigate this is to go slow and to make small steps because yeah. it's not happening it just isn't yeah you know. the handbrake and, and will be pulled whether you choose it, it or not Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the, the thing is, the reason why we need to go slow is we need to explore a different reality. It's not just about doing something else. It's yeah. not just about let's go right instead of left. No, it's it's exploring a different version of reality. That's but a big thing. Is it correct to say that in doing that, in taking those incremental steps, we're actually giving our brain time to one, see that nothing bad's happening yeah. uh, and to yeah. adjust adjust its own model to this new reality that we're exploring so then there's room for more in a sense exactly or else else what will happen is that we get stressed without even knowing that we're stressed in fact that's some of the research i've done myself because a lot of what i've actually done is about stress because i find it so immensely fascinating so a lot of people, if we ask them to rate how stressed they are, they would say, oh, I, I don't feel particularly stressed. And then we can actually measure their nervous systems and or EG or something, and we can see, well, you're pretty stressed. 
We don't even realize. We, we don't even realize it. And what that does is that it limits our capacity to have this, we call it a, a hundred feet view, to have the overview. And to, to get the overview, we also use our working memory. And one of the most, that's actually, I would what you say, shout out to Amy Arnston from, from Yale, fascinating neuroscientist. And she was working with... Uh, What's her name? I forgot. Anyways, I'll I'll it will come. I'll look to me. up these resources. There will be a lot of nerdy stuff in the notes of yeah, this show. Yeah, Amy Arnston's work. Patricia Goldman Rakic. She was her mentor, and and Amy has been continuing the work on working memory in the brain. And what they noticed very early on was that stress. This system is extremely sensitive to stress. Just a little bit of too much. Our working stress memory and, is extremely sensitive yeah, to stress. It's very. It just blocks out uh, because it's such a fascinating mechanism or a system which needs so many things to be in place. It works with a certain amount of norepinephrine, a certain amount of dopamine, and a certain amount of acetylcholine and uh, glutamate and uh, GABA. And, and all of those things needs to orchestrate in a very precise way. And stress just knocks that out. And simply by measuring the stress level of some somebody, we can just predict that their working memory is not working very well at the moment. But if we ask them, so how do you feel? Oh, I'm yep. not stressed at all. I'm doing really well. Yep. And then we tell people, let's go do this massive change in the organization. Let's go this do this crazy stuff. And I can just say, well, your working memory is down to 10%. What is it you want to change? What is it? What is it you think you're going to do right now? Yeah. And which which if I remember correctly, there's a link between working memory and perspective taking or our capacity to see the bigger picture yeah. right, in the moment. So yeah. then if if you're very stressed and your working memory is if I understand that right is down your ability mm. if you're in a leadership context let's say to actually see what's going on exactly drops yeah. with that so the working memory is in a way it's the ability to have several concepts or perceptions you know visualized in your mind at the same time so you can actually you juggle with different things at the same time you know yeah so in, so you're not when you are in your working mem memory you're not paying attention to what's outside now you're taking what is outside together with what was outside yesterday and the day before yesterday so you kind of you you kind of take all these things up and then you 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 look at it from a higher perspective you perspective know? and as you say from different angles and so we can modulate and in a way that's perhaps what we would call thinking we we kind of simulate i could do this i could do that or this is probably not a good idea. And when we're just, when we're stressed, that system just doesn't work very well. And, and people are stressed all the time, in a way. I just, I really want to tease out something from what you just said now. I've just been spending some time with Valerie Livesey recently, who's mm. done a lot of work on, on fallback in yeah, adult development exactly. and, and the mechanisms by which we regress, although we do mm. have this developmental capacity for a broader perspective, mm. we regress into what you often mm. call our, our smaller selves. Yeah. So in a sense, what I'm hearing you say is this could potentially be the the neuroscientific explanation of fallback where you, mm. when you are under stress, that yeah. capacity, that trained capacity to hold perspective actually narrows down to a point. Mm. And if I think yeah. of leaders that we are working with, they often say, I just lost sight. Mm. I just couldn't see anymore. 
and then we just revert to these black and white and right or yeah. wrong and, and narrower mm. frames that we have outgrown yeah. developmentally, but we mm. can't inhabit our mm. broader perspective all the time. And that also mm. invites for a bit of humbleness around glorifying the old, the, the later stages, which is something that I've been mm. banging yeah. on about lately because mm. I feel people get fascinated by adult development theories. And mm. then from that to saying, oh, later stages are better. And there's something mm. better and superior about people operating from those later stages. Mm. When in fact, we still have a brain, we still have our models of reality, mm. we still have... Yeah the stress and those moments of regression. So mm. I think there's also an invitation to also acknowledge the fluidity okay. of development. Mm. Curious if, if it resonates at all with your own experience of linking these two. Definitely. So I also used to lecture in, in organizational psychology. And of course, regression is a huge part of business psychology. And again, from, from a neuroscience perspective, the world is unpredictable. How can we create predictability? We need to narrow down the scope. Okay, I can only focus about this much at the time because all of that is unpredictable. So yeah. we need to find what's predictable. So it's, it's, and again, that's the thing we haven't talked much about because the other part of the story, one thing is, 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 is the brain and the body. The other thing is, what is it that the brain and the body is directed towards? And it's, of course, directed towards the world, which means that. Everything is in a way about action and actions feels like something. That's where the, the, the emotional part comes in. And, and, but it's also actions in relationship, in relation to the world. So we, so the world or the environment is extremely important because the brain in a way maps on to the environment. And we call that the affordance landscape. It's an old term from ecological psychology, that the environment, what is the world? Well, the world is a possibility for action. And it's very important to be very aware that, of course, our brains, when it looks at something that I can engage with that, it's going to create predictions. And those yep. predictions will create an urge, and I want to engage with that. So the, the, the whole environment I'm in is going to create something. Either I want to withdraw from it or I want to engage with it, and even though you're this super mature individual, you, your brain still works the same way. It hasn't changed at all. It, it, it's, the purpose is still to make sure that the body gets what it needs and the body avoids what it doesn't need, you know. I'm, I'm happy you brought this up because uh, I've recently recorded an episode with John Lurie, who does a lot of work mm -hmm. in, in systems change mm -hmm. in organizations. So she's taken a very systemic perspective on adult mm -hmm. development. And this is just one more reminder it's yeah. never in isolation. I know we've we focused a lot on the individual and their brain mm. and those links yeah. with individual development, but this reminder that, and I think you said it at some point in this conversation, mm. we are systems within systems. We are a system ourselves, yeah. but then we are in yeah. this broader system and there's always that interconnectedness happening. Mm. So never believe that you are changing your brain alone and in isolation because that never is actually true. No, no. And if I can elaborate a little bit, it's even so important that the way I and others would look at stress is stress is not the presence of threat. Stress is the absence of safety. And safety is a function of the environment. So the, the, the brain and the body feel safe when the environment is in a specific way, which means that it's predictable, which also means that the environment is the holding space for the self. And what does that mean? 
the old psychologist Winnicott, he used this notion of the holding environment. The parents holds the environment for the children. And as they grow, then they, they're first they are dependent, then they're interdependent, and then uh, they become uh, independent. But the way I look at it is we, we never really become independent. We're always dependent on the holding environment because the holding, the environment keeps the brain feeling safe in a way and the body also. And we know this from studies of, of deprivation, sensory deprivation. If you put people into a space where they don't get any sensory stimuli, they become psychotic. So you always need to have possibilities that of engagement. You always need to have sensory signals coming in all the time or else you go mad. So, so in a way, the environment really, really holds the brain and the body. And of course, consciousness is, is a different animal there or different. I don't know what you want to call that, it. I, I'm just going to maybe write this somewhere. I think this is just such an important thing. It's almost like a tagline. What you just said now, that stress is not the presence of threat. It's actually the absence of safety. Yeah. So, Johan, what's your... Maybe if this was my last question for you, because there's so much richness in this conversation and so much for me to reflect about, and I am really dying to see what what thoughts and reflections it'll spark for people listening to this. Mm. What's your hope? What's that impulse that you started with where you felt like you were outside mm. and trying to see a different perspective? And I'm sensing it's still driving you in some way. What's your hope with all the work that you're doing, exploring these intersections? And I know you mm. take a lot of this work in organizations and in your own work with leaders and teams and other contexts, but at the core for you at this stage in your life, as a father, as a consultant, as a researcher, as a human being in your own becoming, why is this important? Why does this whole mm. work matter? Mm. For yeah. me, I my dream is that development is not just something that is good. It is it's, it, it development would become the backbone of, of society of communities. And not in, individu in individuals. Uh, development should be important for the whole community, which means that the way I think we think of society today is that, you know, you first you have, need to have fun, you need to get an education, you need to get a job, you need to get an, a career, and then you grow old, and then you can buy a boat and go on pension if you leave in the West at least. But for me, that's that's all nice and good and all that. But for me, the, the story I think would be much more beneficial to the world would be a story where, no, we live in a developing society. And I know Eric Erickson, uh, of course, he, he was um, noticing these things in, in the North American uh, native tribes. What is the difference between a developmental culture and a not so developmental culture. And he noticed that those, a few of the, the tribes, they were actually very developmental. It was the core of the whole society, which means that there's always somebody who is very old and very wise that everybody can go to, or there's a council of very old and wise people that everybody can go to. But again, it's not individuals it's it's a collective and everybody has a direction in a way that the child knows that one day I'll grow up and become more wise. And if I'm 35 or 45, uh, I, I would still know that there is a direction. 
because in I can the just sense look of at building those. more wisdom, not just achieving yeah, more outward. Exactly. Um, it's it's not about success. achieving. It's about creating a sustainable and healthy community, and and which means that everything I do, to some extent, at some point in my life, is about giving back, and and that's very meaningful. And we we know that from the few cultures who actually live that way. So, gave me the goosebumps, and because if, for me this this question around what is wisdom and how can we grow wiser is has been for a very very long time the obsessive question that i'm still pursuing so to hear you articulate that so beautifully it's just hope giving but also a bit terrifying because there's always for me the fear in my mind what if we don't make it what if we don't mm. grow up fast enough to kind of mm get to that place but it, it also mm. I think articulates why this developmental work is not just a nice to have or not just mm. a way to enhance performance in organizations I think it does all of that mm. uh, all the pragmatic reasons for which businesses yeah. are interested in these things that we've been talking about but I think there's something beyond that that could actually benefit mm. the whole of society yeah. in mm. a very profound way Mm. So I'm deeply, deeply grateful for you and your work, Johan, and I'm happy we, we found each other and I get to nerd and learn. And I think this is uh, the first conversation of what I hope will be many more to come. And at least one of the many more to come, I would love to record uh, because as I said, I've got a whole list of mm. unanswered questions and things that um, I'd love to explore. Consciousness being top of the list <laughs> and thoughts nice. on that. Yeah. But um, Definitely. How is it for you? I'll, I know you're not a you're a very straight up in your how you go about things. How is this um, exploration for you? Well, I, it's been really great. It's been really great. We have a common interest in adult development, so and I really like it when I can connect all the the hard science stuff to adult development. So yeah. that's, for me, it's it's just it's just perfect in a way. Thank and you. You're, you have a lot of good questions you are also i can see a, a good scientist always has more questions than answers so i suppose that's what you are yeah <laughs> uh thank you i appreciate it. that's the ultimate compliment i'm striving to be i definitely think that research has just made me so much more humble about what i know and much more curious mm. about the ocean of what i don't know which is something you started with yourself so i guess it's it's something that when you get into research you probably that's a gift <laughs> that comes with it yeah I think there will be lots of links that I would love to get from you on articles and resources and some of the researches mm. you brought into the conversation. And I'll be directing people your way because I'm pretty sure some questions will pop up as people listen to this. But thank you. It's been perfect. awesome. It has. Thank you. I was left with so many thoughts and reflections after this conversation. In no particular order, I'll just share a few of them with you and invite you to consider what your own insights have been. Disturb your reality in small steps is what I've heard Johan say. And take the action that is counterintuitive, that goes against your current model. Because left to its own devices, your brain is going to always search for predictability, for what has been known before, although the known space might actually be a painful space. 
but the known pain seems easier to bear than the unknown. So to be able to break that pattern, we might need to consciously step into discomfort. And as it turns out, discomfort in small doses is better than discomfort in large doses. I've also learned that stress is not the presence of threat, but the absence of safety. And that safety is a function of the environment, which means that the environment itself is a holding space for the self. We do not exist or develop in isolation, and what we call adult development is never a solo journey. We exist, we grow, we transform in relation to our environments. So how is your environment holding you at the moment? What are some maps that you have navigated life by and you might want to challenge? What I also resonated deeply with and felt very touched by was the hope that Johann expressed that one day development might become the backbone of our societies. That we might live in developmental cultures where wisdom building is as important, if not more so, than economic growth at all costs. And perhaps in bringing wisdom into the way we live and the way we interact with each other might support us in creating a more sustainable and healthy community and world and might help us spend our lives with more purpose and meaning and more energy for giving back, not just taking from our environment. So many other reflections are percolating for me, but um, I'm very, very curious to hear yours. Whether you want to throw them in a comment underneath this podcast episode, uh, write an email or share on LinkedIn, you're welcome to express your thoughts. Contact me or Johan with your questions. And if you do want to listen to a second part of this podcast, we would love to know what you're interested in hearing more about, what we might focus on. If you have receive this podcast as a share do know that it is part of a larger space where uh, all of the articles and the podcasts on vertical development from the vertical development institute are hosted it's our substack space which you can find at verticaldevelopment.education i encourage you to subscribe to that space and receive all of these nuggets of reflection in your inbox every week Till next time, my friends, I hope you stay conscious, curious, and wise. Thank you for listening.